listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Belaboured Episode 123. This week, we talk to some of the women's strikers and have some very special guests from the March on Nissan in Mississippi. But first, the news. SeaTac, the airport town just outside of Seattle, was a launchpad for the nationwide movement for a $15 minimum wage. Now, the movement just got another takeoff with baggage and other contract service workers at the SeaTac airport. Their contracts can now be shifted to a different Alaska air contractor that will provide them with a union contract under the Machinist Union that will ultimately provide them with improved benefits and wage increases. This shift is happening over a decade after Alaska Air originally siphoned those jobs off to a low-wage contractor, Menzies, which subsequently slashed wages and spurred the initial call for a $15 minimum wage. Now the campaign has finally come full circle. Workers can enjoy benefits like expanded health care and travel privileges. And within five years, after incremental raises, baggage workers will be making about $20 an hour. But it should be underscored that McGee, the new contractor, is in fact a wholly owned subsidiary of Alaska Air. So this is clearly an effort to subcontract away those legacy labor costs. Alaska Air still gets a pretty sweet deal by basically subcontracting its work out uh, through a process also known as internal outsourcing. This is a pattern we see at many airports that use runway support services that are kept deliberately separate from their regular employee labor pool. And uh, since they have refused to take responsibility for this workforce, they are essentially uh, divesting themselves of their responsibility as employers. This is a nationwide labor struggle in which unions like SEIU and Unite Here have steadily been making gains over the years, but they are starting from scratch when they really shouldn't have had to in the first place. By pushing them off the payroll, they're degrading working conditions for the entire industry. I'm in Indiana this week on a reporting trip about which you will hear much more very soon, and I joined the folks in Lafayette, Indiana, who put together the women's strike out here. I spoke with Mega Anwar at Purdue, who organized the walkout on that campus. So we are here in Pence Country That's for right. International Women's Day and for the women's strike. So tell us about doing feminist organizing in in Pence Country and I mean it's been hard but you know uh, I think more and more women are aware of the fact that their rights can very easily be sort of just you know sort of pulled from under their feet and uh, I mean even here this is contested terrain right like yeah. it's it's hard to win women over and sort of convince them why their right their absolute right over their bodies is imperative uh, but it's a struggle that's ongoing uh, but I think th- these are things that women of color and trans women have known all along right uh, but finally in a certain sense white liberal feminists are waking up to truth at their own doorsteps and so what is happening is that this is becoming an occasion for women all women cis and trans women and women of color and white women to finally join forces and uh, so it is the awakening uh, in a certain sense but I think there's a lot of work to be done still. Yeah so talk about the importance of a strike in particular. Yeah so I mean this is something that I mentioned right at the start of our event today which is that strike has become such a tainted word right it's such a it's because we're the people in power are so invested in uh, making us afraid of our own weapons of emancipation which is why strike is a is a filthy word it's it's the word that you know because we're, we're we've been taught that the only way in which we have meaning is if we are compulsively laboring for the very people who oppress us and so it's important particularly today because of women's uh, you know International Women's Day has a long history of radical striking uh, and so what we're trying to do is recover the word and emancipate our language and stop it from being the un- unspoken word so that we can liberate our souls. How was the response on campus from, from students and faculty while you were organizing? Uh, it was uh, it's hard like I mean you you keep organizing and then you find that there are still so many people who know nothing about mm-hmm. what's going on and I think it's again like ignorance is not something that 
we've chosen it's also something that we've been taught right we've been taught to be ignorant of what's of 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 our rights but also of the people who are taking away our rights from us so uh it's been hard but we've received so much support so uh i know that a lot of women who wanted to strike for example uh but are vulnerable in their jobs came out and there were other women uh you know stepping in from them for them and substituting them uh while they wanted to be here uh there are other women who have not been able to come out at all not been able to walk out but they're all wearing red uh so yeah i think we're striking both inside and outside offices so yeah okay um and you mentioned that there's a a space downtown there's a space downtown yep. where the walkout which is a walkout venue but there's yep. a spot in the in the town which is hana community center which is our headquarters that's a space that's been open from 9 am to 6 pm today uh we've like all the committee planning committee members are there and we've had people from the community uh union members come out there we have bagels we have uh you know coloring sheets we have got this artwork going where we're creating one artifact for all the women in our lives uh instead of weaving threads and ribbons together we just have a space where we can experience what community building can feel like to all the politicians who say that this is all just paid protesters yeah. and uh coastal liberals and uh a bunch of well yeah. we might yeah. feel guilty to being a bunch of radical socialists <laughs> but that's uh, yeah 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 there are separate things that i would say to the politicians who think i've been paid to do this uh, this is one of the one of the many things that i have not been paid to do but this is one of the few things one of the few few forms of unpaid labor that i am willing to do yeah. and put my body on the line for uh and demand what is like i said what is our right uh to those who say that uh strike is only the luxury of the privilege that is bullshit strike is uh the most basic form of uh resistance to them for the most vulnerable women uh and it is precisely the most vulnerable women that have come out and and you know demanded their rights over the history of modernity really uh and so it is so don't don't you know we people should stop sort of shaming women who strike that's one uh and the other thing is of course that it doesn't matter whether you are liberated or not uh whether you are privileged or not what matters to us is that is how you're using your privilege so if you're if you have been privileged and you're coming out to stand in solidarity with the most vulnerable women then you're using your privilege right That was Mega Anwar and I also spoke with Melissa Groover who is chapter director for Younger Women's Task Force in Lafayette, Indiana. So tell me about organizing for the women's strike. Yeah, so I would say that it's been a really powerful experience even the process of organizing has been really powerful. So um basically when we noticed that um the call to strike come out from Tithi Bhattacharya and Angela Davis at all. I actually messaged Tithi and I was like, "Should we do something locally or do you think our energy would be used best somewhere else? What do you think? What do you need?" And she was like, "No, I encourage do a local thing, get a planning committee together." So, we just kind of put an open call out for that. Um a lot of folks from YWCF, but we also really connected with people that we saw in some online organizing communities that were wanting to put different things together and we just gathered in my living room and started talking about what would it look like for us um to coordinate something here um and in particular what um specifically to our kind of community in our region is it important for us to focus on you know and and we all really agreed that we want to center the experiences of working class women particularly women of color uh and have you know multiple ways that people can participate yeah. um but we also wanted to be really um clear that we were using like strike language and that we were really encouraging folks to think about doing what they can when they can to to support this yeah yeah talk about the the people who are involved in the the committee and who's who went on strike today what was the downtown event that I did not make it to like yes yeah it was really cool so so um a lot of, so the folks on our committee are like women of color working class women women with salaried jobs um uh, academics non-academics um queer folks we had trans women on our committee what was really really powerful about the downtown action um was that there are a lot of folks that um were able to walk even off their jobs for that time right from downtown and folks were able to gather there and it was really powerful to see people kind of walking from like 
each street, you know. So um, as we were playing Bright and Roses, and, and we had probably about 50 folks there. People are really anxious to be clear about um, how we can make the labor of women, both paid and unpaid, visible, right? So like we're trying to make the invisible visible. And what does it look like to be really um, honest? So for example, when we had folks say like, um, I'm striking for, or I'm striking against, you know, we passed the megaphone and one person, one woman who's a local bartender said, I'm striking against being called a girl at my workplace, right? Um, And some folks were like, I'm striking for those who can't even be here today, right? I'm striking in solidarity. I'm striking against unpaid emotional labor for men in my life, right? And so for me, it's really was really powerful uh, to get that kind of thing confirmed because just in this past year, I've been thinking a lot about what is the unpaid labor that I do. So this is, for me, a really first step in saying to my roommates, for example, that are men and my friends that are men, Here's some of the stuff that I do for you that maybe even I don't even notice, right? Um, And what does that look like? What would it look like if I stopped? What would it look like if we all stopped? We kind of hold this world together as women, you know, and people would really notice, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting. You mentioned it as a first step, and I Mm -hmm. think that's a a powerful thing. Like a lot of sort of the, some of the negative responses to this were like, what about, what if it, like, nothing happens? Mm -hmm. And so talk about it as a first step, and where where do you go from here? What were the new connections that were made in organizing for this that Mm -hmm. can then build for the next thing? Yeah, I think that's a really good um, question. Um, And so, like, our letter mentions that we're uh, striking to reflect on the work that women have done um, throughout history, um, to like labor for us all and then to reflect on what is our next move moving forward right so I think a lot of those conversations will happen here like um, even as we're kind of tucking away hearing people talk about Affordable Care Act and sharing their own stories with that and so I believe in the power of storytelling and counter storytelling um, where people can connect with one another over that um, and raise their consciousness but also for Younger Women's Task Force this is a really good opportunity um, to continue to build our base and to continue to have conversations uh, about our own um, campaigns moving forward for uh, which right now we've been focusing a lot about reproductive justice and uh, sexual violence against women uh, with an anti-racist framework right and so um, Younger Women's Task Force is really uh, thinking right now about strategic ways to continue to build our organization um, as it relates to working class women. And so for us, this was a really great way to, to connect with some people that maybe we've seen a couple of different times before, and you're always thinking like hey, we'll see you at the next meeting, you know, that kind of thing. So as people are leaving, you know, some people are saying, oh, I'll see you on March 22nd, which is our next meeting. Um, And so we know that every time we do a public action like this, we we gain more folks, Mm -hmm. right? And then more folks when we can strategize our or organizing in the future so we're really focused on our work with the indiana reproductive justice coalition right now but we really want to make sure that we're thinking about and looking to see where working class women are affecting our own local communities and our state mm-hmm. at the time you got started uh-huh. you were in pence country and now yes. the entire country is pence country yes. so what should um feminist organizers around the country know about mike pence mm, that's a great question i would say that he hates women or at least he benefits from perpetuating policies that are against women and people of color and queer people and trans folks, you know. And Indiana was about to fire Mike Pence, and then he became the vice president of the United States. And on one hand, that's kind of sad. It's like watching a horror movie and thinking the uh, villain is gone, and then, and then as the credits are about to roll, he jumps into the back of the pickup truck of the the heroines as they drive away and you just know but on the other hand it's really powerful to remember we were about to meet Mike Pence so we could do that you know what I mean like because now there's more of us that are affected by the issue and so we can um, connect with one another um, 
and and especially in Indiana in a place that is not typically talked about to be about the business of organizing, right? When you hear about this, you might think Chicago. You know what I mean? You don't always think Indiana, right? But this state was organizing against this governor. And so we could do that. We could do that as a country, too. And that was Melissa Groover. In case you missed it, of the many wild and crazy things Donald Trump said in his speech to Congress... One surprising sleeper of the evening was the president's brief mention of his so-called child care and paid leave plan, which apparently amounts to a glorified tax subsidy. According to analyses of the preliminary plan, progressive economists with the Tax Policy Center estimate that about two-thirds of the benefits go to those making over $100,000 a year, a quarter to those earning over $200,000, and that's basically a lump sum that they get paid in the form of a yearly tax credit. Not very helpful when you're trying to pay for monthly childcare bills. Certainly, of course, uh, if you're making over 200 k a year, you probably don't really need that subsidy anyway. Meanwhile, families earning below uh, that amount get just a fraction, perhaps a meager $50 a month, um, while they'd be continuing to pay perhaps half their income towards childcare. Often these are the services that they need in order to stay in the workforce and extra ironically to earn just enough money to barely cover childcare and their other basic needs. So essentially, working parents have to choose between work and childcare, or childcare and rent, and food. Take your pick. Meanwhile, the federal subsidy program that is currently in place is broken and underfunded, and Trump plans to actually block grant much of the welfare system and to really cut other crucial federal benefits programs, such as school lunch and those other things that, you know, children really don't need. Um, the long-term costs of fully funding child care across the country, of course, are substantial, but they are cost-effective in the long run when you realize that, oh, it's about educating the next generation of workers. And also, it helps bring down the overall costs of the entire system because these systems would be regulated under federal standards. That's not accounted for in the current system, which relies on a bunch of private providers, which can range from community-based religious centers to uh, school-based Head Start programs. Not that there can't be really good services and all these types of providers, but you need federal standards to ensure that the workers are getting paid adequately and that you're having the most qualified teachers. And if you don't have qualified child care workers, if you can't retain that workforce with a livable wage, you don't have good care. And if you don't have good care, that hurts working parents who are working as both providers and consumers of child care. By the way, in case you haven't noticed, this is a problem that almost exclusively targets low-wage women, especially low-wage women of color. And that's all the more reason teachers and people in need of child care for their own kids turned out the protests on Wednesday to show that when women withhold paid or unpaid labor, that doesn't work for anyone and everyone can get paid for what they do at home and in the workplace then everyone benefits including the next generation now from the front lines of the women's strike to the heart of the delta we are going to go to a union fight that is now unfolding in mississippi In a town called Canton, the workers at a Nissan plant there have been pushing for a union for years um, after being strafed by a management that has repeatedly been cited for safety issues, um, has repeatedly tried to bust the union drive, and has resorted to uh, temping out the workforce in order to undermine working conditions. Those workers are now fighting back. And uh, their victory, if it happens, will be a symbolic win for uh, a region that is traditionally known to be pretty hostile to unions. Um, So it's a pretty symbolic fight, but it is also very meaningful for the individual workers there as well. I caught up with Danny Glover, who has been campaigning there in addition to being an award-winning actor. He is also quite the labor activist and has been advocating on issues of civil rights for many years now. And uh, he was speaking there with Bernie Sanders and others who are rallying behind the workers um, as an extension of a long legacy of black workers' struggle in the South and beyond. Here's Danny Glover. 
tell us what you're doing there on Saturday and why this struggle at the Nissan plant is important. I'm here for a, what we consider a major march, one of the largest marches since the 60s in the Civil Rights Movement in Canton, Mississippi, which is a suburb or adjacent to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, we all know Jackson, Mississippi as the center of uh, activism with young people in 1964 with the uh, Freedom Summer uh, campaign uh, more than 50 years ago. I'm here in the service on behalf of Nissan workers who are working and organizing so that they can force Nissan to hold a vote so that they can have a union. This makes me clear. This is not a, a union. This is not a form of collective bargaining, a relationship that the workers have with the company and that Nissan, which is three plants, two in Mississippi, one in Tennessee, does not have union representation. So we're here for the march in support of workers, communities, all aspects of communities, from uh, local politicians to uh, faith-based community and other institutions are supporting the Nissan workers and the march. The rally itself is a strategic tactic to bring Nissan to the realization that these workers want a vote in order to have a union and that they've been campaigning for this and they want this vote without the intimidation and threats that the company has, has used uh, as a way of not allowing them to organize this. They want the company to be neutral in this and that's what this march is about. It has support and we're building a campaign, as I say, it's a tactic. It's more than just a tactic. It's a building a campaign to bring Nissan to the point where, where they sit down with the workers. It's historically been very challenging for labor unions to unionize in the South, even at, in traditionally unionized industries like auto. Part of it is um, you know, right-to-work states and right-to-work laws, what the companies will tell you is that the workers don't want a union. This is the culture in the South. What do you say to people who just say unionizing in the South is impossible? This is not a union region. Well, we've always had this differentiation between one area and another region. Michigan just voted in a year or so ago to make Michigan a right-to-work state. You know what I'm saying? We know why the South had not unions before. It's the history of the South, whether it's using low-wage workers, uh, black workers, African-American workers, from slavery to Jim Crow, and now to Nissan, from slavery to Jim Crow, and now to Nissan. And we can make an argument that, that this has been the history of the South. But just because it's the history of the South doesn't mean that one is just and it doesn't mean it has to be the future of the South. And so what these workers are saying that if Nissan could have unions in every plant out of 42 of the 45 plants that they have around the world, you know, if they could have unions in South Africa, if they can have unions and work with unions in Brazil, if they can work with unions in Mexico, why not us? There's a long history of the civil rights movement and the labor movement working hand-in-hand hand that seems often forgotten today or not talked about in a lot of debates about workers' rights or um, even race relations. What do you think people should remember um, looking back at the history of the labor movement about the connection between racial justice and economic justice and labor justice? In fact, if we look at the history of uh, labor rights and civil rights, there's a very close connection long before the civil rights movement, long before that. There's the, the most radical and, and most progressive elements around civil rights were in labor unions. 
Look at A. Philip Randolph, who began organizing porter car workers, railway workers, or, or Harry Bridges. Look at the story of Harry Bridges in San Francisco, 1934 strike, general strike. Harry Bridges went around to all the black churches in the Bay Area, and he had to go by boat because there were no Bay Bridge and Golden Gate Bridge there. He had to go by boat. He went around there, and he told those black worshipers, if you do not become scabs on our strike, if you do not cross that picket line, I promise you that black men will be on the docks when, and that's the operative word, when we win this strike. And that promise happened. I went to school with generations of men and women whose fathers, grandfathers, you know, whose uncles and everything, whose brothers worked at the docks because of that. So the question is, this always been around this struggle around unions until unions win. Once unions win, and we can see the extraordinary impact that unions have on people's real lives, unions make workers better citizens. I come out of a union family. My parents were in the post-employees union in 1948. They worked through that union and worked with that union through their whole career as workers, as, as postal employees, you know. So the, the fact is that we have to talk about what do we need now. We've gone through the heyday of U.S. capitalism, and we've seen over the last more than 40 years, real wages continue to drop and fall for workers. That's reality. That's the reality of it. And one of the things that we have to talk about in order to raise the rich government workers is unions. Unions for workers are democracy at work. Speaking of democracy, uh, we have a new president who has been one of the most racially divisive figures in recent memory, now heading up uh, you know, labor and economic policy, and yet he positions himself as a representative of the working people. I know it's early days, but he's already started to ingratiate himself with, with workers, saying that he's on their side, that he's going to do a lot of things to bring jobs back to people. What should we remember about Trump? Um, as you engage in this struggle here in the South? Well, one, one of the things that we could really, we have the opportunity to do is to distinguish his rhetoric during the campaign from what he does in office right now. If he's on the side of workers, and I, I have my own feelings about that, but if he's on the side of workers, then uh, he will support Nissan workers here in Canton, Mississippi. He would support those companies that, that are transnational, or, or he would condemn those companies, which are transnational uh, companies, which try to use uh, and, and try to make uh, Mississippi and other places in the South a place for low-wage workers, if he's on the side of workers. And certainly, uh, we know that a great deal of workers who voted for Trump voted for those for reasons, and it comes out of fear. It comes out of uncertainty. It comes out of the loss of, of power, the power that workers have had over the past administration, both Republican and, and Democratic administration. So we know, we know that is the fact as well. You know, all the statistical data has been done and collected to say what really happened during this election and why. We know that, that uh, trade agreements and, and automation and other things have driven work, driven uh, jobs out of this country and is taking those jobs away from workers here. But the impact is not only simply in this country as well. The impact is happening in other places in the world. We're going to find that as, as capital has moved, as money has moved to wherever it wants to move, whether there's more money from Japan with Nissan, which is 43% owned by, by Renault, which 25% of Renault is owned by the French government, if it's, some, if it's that, or if there's other companies that come here and find that they can invest money in here. But the question about having safety in the workplace, having a relationship and collective bargaining for workers is something that we cannot in any, in, in any way give up. 
What do you think about Trump claiming to uh, care about working people, but yet he continually alienates immigrant workers, low-wage workers of color, um, African-American communities, um, the groups that are really hurting for uh, fair wages and fair jobs uh, right there in the South? How do you square that? And what should uh, what should the rest of the labor movement maybe remember as uh, Trump tries to uh, make you know appeal to workers? I mean, the message that he gives is for American workers. The message that he gives uh, is America first, and that that's at the exclusion of immigrants uh, and people of color. It's clear there's some sort of contradiction in his message as well, you know. So I mean, that is that is essentially one of the issues they had back. But we could stand. It's not what Trump do, does at this particular point in time. It's what we do. And I think it's what it has to be clear in terms of this is the work that we do as citizens is, is, the, most, is, the, is the most important and most critical work at this particular point. Because we can in, in every way criticize Trump, but we have to do something to counter the contradictions that he raised. We have to do something to counter the lies that he tells and misinformation that he puts out. So the question about, about Trump and the question about the history, where are we at at this point in history? And uh, um, I, I, I don't think that, that in, in, in any way we, we, can only, we can only take this particular moment that we're in and use this moment as a building and create the kind of sustainable activism on a part of what we do in, in relationship to workers and justice for workers, what we do in relationship to everything that we have in terms of issues of racism and issues of war and, it, and issues around uh, environmental degradation and global warming and climate change. One last word before uh, before Saturday's rally. Um, whether or not they get a union, uh, we don't know how this vote is going to turn out if they get it, but what do you think the workers that you've talked to, that you've been marching with, uh, what, what have they already proven with their campaign so far? They've already proven they're incredibly courageous, and they have a vision, of, a vision that a new world and a new relationship is possible. Whether Nissan comes to the table and realizes that the workers do matter and they have to be respected, whether they do that or not, this campaign is going on. This is a campaign not only for Nissan workers. It's a campaign for the soul of this community. It's a campaign for Mississippi workers. It's a campaign for workers here and around the world. That was Danny Glover talking about the union struggle in Canton, Mississippi. I also talked with Morris Mack. He is a paint line worker there who has been a key organizer in the union drive. He talked about the need for a union, what it means for workplace health and safety, what it will do for the working families in the area, and what labor organizing means in the era of Trump and globalization and anti-globalization. Several thousand people showed up. Uh, we had a lot of a lot of international guests there uh, from different labor unions around the world. We had a lot of the students, a lot of workers to show, and uh, you know it was a, it was just an amazing thing. Um, and talk about your job. What do you do there? Uh, and um, you know what what what's your role been, and how long have you been with Nissan? Uh, I'm a paint technician. I've been there for 13 years. And my role uh, in, in what I do is, uh, you know, right now I'm just I'm organizing, uh, trying to organize my workers so they can have a, a contract uh, so we can get a union. Uh, you know, it's been a process. Uh, we started doing it back and we started doing the car check back 2012. And, uh, you know, we are, it, it, everything's looking promising. Everything is looking, uh, looking like we're going to move forward uh, with the campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, what are you envisioning for the collective bargaining unit? Who would it include at the plant? Um, would it also include the temp workers? And um, are, uh, do you, you know, how have you been organizing the whole uh, temp versus full time versus permanent temp? Well, we would sure like the temp workers to be in the in the, uh, in the negotiations, uh, but we are we are realists. We are uh, because the temps as soon as they get hired. Uh, the company, uh, they start the uh, brainwashing and the anti-union messages 
before they even enter the factory. So uh, there's there's a lot of reprogramming that we have to do in order to uh, get get that solid uh, a thing uh, a solid answer of what whether or not they want a union. I think that uh, that's the reason why we need a fair uh, election and stop the threats and intimidation of workers. Yeah. Um, you talked about uh, deprogramming. How, how has the organizing been and, and what tactics have you used to really, um, you know, spread uh, the message of why it's important to have a union, uh, both, you know, at the workplace and in your communities? I think, you know, just being honest about what's going on, uh, about health and safety and, and all of the OSHA violations. I think that, you know, just if, if you know, the paperwork OSHA is not lying about uh, the uh, unsafe working conditions inside the factory. Uh, you look at the um, just like EEOC and you can EEOC charges against Nissan. And uh, even if you compare it with other unionized factories across the uh, across the world, uh, you know, simply uh, union workers make 27 percent more than non-union workers. And that's a fact. So if we just be honest with the workers and, and don't try to hide anything with the workers, uh, they can make a, a honest and clear decision of whether or not they're going to union or not. Just to clarify, the uh, the EEOC cases are regarding, that's the Equal uh, Employment Opportunity Commission. Uh, yes, what, yes, what, is, what have yes, been ma'am. the issues that you've had there with uh, discrimination or equal opportunity? Yeah, yes, I mean, even if it's like discrimination against women, against any, any type of, any label, any type of discrimination going on, uh, racial discrimination, all kinds of things uh, going on on that, on that level. So that's what we are, um, that's what we're trying to, uh, trying to do is try to, you know, just try to educate the people on, uh, you know, their rights and what they can do and just being, being honest and as transparent. And I, we feel that if we're more, if we're as, as transparent as we can, you know, we feel that, uh, 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 that they will, they will understand. Uh, you know, being in a union, uh, it, it, you know, it has its good points and its bad points, but you know, either we're going to, it's consistency that makes the union so special. And the worker does not have to assume, uh, you know, either it's going to be consistently wrong or consistently right. But, you know, there's a level of consistency, consistency in a union where you know how much you're going to get paid. You understand the health and safety uh, situations and you can fight against it. You referred to the OSHA violations, um, occupational safety and health. Um, have you experienced any of those on your job and, and your coworkers? What are they telling you? Yes, ma'am. We, we actually, I, I, I don't have the paperwork with me, but we actually just within a couple of weeks had a, a lot of OSHA violations uh, throughout. And, you know, workers are, workers are tired. You know, they, they feel that, um, you know, I think that the workers are, they understand that, you know, look, Nisa needs to, I'll fix the stuff that is broken inside. Since the Trump administration came in, why do you think that under this administration, uh, union power is especially important, perhaps? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, when, when under the Trump administration, I think that um, it's, it's extremely important because, you know, most, most, most of the time in the, uh, in the political arena, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a trickle down. Trickle down has never worked. And I think that the middle class has been, uh, uh, honestly, because of what's going on right now, the middle class is beginning to uh, take the, really feel the squeeze. And I think that more money, more funding needs to be uh, affiliated with the middle class of America. I think that uh, under the Trump administration, uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, he's he he's just got in office, and and we do have uh, workers who support uh, uh, support Trump and, and and who support the union. Uh, but you know, we all I can say is we will see. But things are not looking as promising as as it would it would seem. Speaking of you know going forward, what the next four years are going to look like? Um... Uh, Trump and, and other politicians are talking about, uh, seems like they always talk about this, but, you know, bringing back jobs to the U.S. Um, 
The auto industry, of course, as you know, has been particularly hard hit by a lot of the currents of globalization. Um, on, on an industrial level, like what, how, how do you think labor should be responding to some of these changes in the global economy? And, and um, how do you feel as a worker being caught up in all that? Well, ma'am, I honestly, it's one step at a time. My main focus at this point is to win the election. And I, I, I really don't, uh, that's my main goal at this point. And, you know, you know, one, one fight at a time. I know it's one, it's one big fight, but I, I really, I really don't know. I just know that people are hurting inside our fashion. Uh, we had a, a, a young man to die and, and three to die at our, our Smyrna, Tennessee factory. So I think that, you know, I'm just focusing on the workers right now. People say that, uh, you know, it's hard to unionize the South. It's not in the culture. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, you know with, with, uh, with the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, they had their struggles. You know, how, how have you been seeing uh, the labor movement move forward in, in a place like, like Mississippi? Well, you know, people, people I, I've seen it move. I, I've seen people are, you know, first we have to educate. It was you know, at one time they said it was hard to even free the slaves, but it happened. So, you know, I don't think we have any options, any other options. And, uh, and we, this is something that is, that we have to do. This is nothing, something that we, we, this is something, you know, fair election, treating labor with dignity and, and with respect is something that, that we have to do. And I think for Nissan to stay competitive, I think that they need to start putting the workers first. Instead of you know anything else, the workers are, are, are the most valuable piece of uh, of what they need. And at what point did you decide that you wanted a union personally? Yeah, so you know when uh, when Nissan started making changes to uh, the, the benefits and and all that, and you can't afford the medication when you could, and they started going up on your uh, insurance deduct deductibles and premiums and, and all that. And, you know, you're like, okay, well, wait a minute now, you know, if, if something, and then you realize that if something happens in a serious nature and you really, really need it, uh, you know, you're going to be out of pocket and you have to, pro- most of the workers will have to use their 401k uh, to even pay their insurance deductibles. So, you know, we think that that's not right. We feel that, uh, you know, workers work too hard uh, not to have decent uh, benefits That was Morris Mack of the Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg, I wish I'd written that. In all the discussion about the women's strike this week, there is a lot of fundamental misunderstanding of what a strike is. I'm going to assume that our listeners at Belabored understand this concept rather better than some of the hot takes whose names I won't mention. But this piece from labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein at Jacobin was a really great dive into the history of protest in the U.S. and how it had been for a very long time up until recently intimately connected with the idea of shutting down work for the day. I kind of just need to quote this at length because it's really important to consider some of this. He writes, quote, Most recent marches and demonstrations don't have much impact at work. They are often held on a Saturday at a location far away from residences and workplaces. But this weekend protest tradition is actually of relatively recent origin, with an unexamined politics and strategic outlook that has weakened the very impact of the cause those participating seek to advance. While more people might be expected to show up on a Saturday, the potency of their protest is diluted by creating a divide between what people do in the arena of politics and how they conduct themselves in the world of work. In the 19th century and for decades after, one could hardly make such a distinction. A demonstration, a strike, and a march were all part of the same protest. Workers in tightly packed industrial districts turned out of their factories and mills, marching by neighboring work sites and calling on their mates to down tools and join the parade. In their demand for a shorter workday, union recognition, or higher wages, they sought not just to stop production, but to occupy the public square, civic space, in order to demonstrate their power both as workers and rights-bearing citizens. 
Thus did the women of the antebellum Lowell Mills declare themselves daughters of freemen in, in protest against the lords of the loom and lords of the lash. Clashes with the police or militia were frequent because the local bourgeoisie were just as determined to deny such public legitimacy to a proletariat organizing itself for political and economic combat. In the 1930s and 1940s, when the industrial unions were on the rise, the biggest demonstrations also shut down factory districts in Detroit, Chicago, Akron, Oakland, the Garment District of Manhattan, and other industrial hubs, end quote. The strategy didn't fade until the 1960s. Even the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, with its labor leadership, for example, was held on a Wednesday. It was students for a democratic society, not to point fingers, who decided that Saturday marches would get a bigger turnout and who introduced the disconnect between political protest and the labor strike. Even labor then started to hold Saturday marches. Lichtenstein's piece is called No More Saturday Marches for good reason. The power of the women's strike of the day without an immigrant protest recently was packed in disrupting business as usual in the risk and escalation implied in screwing with the workday. Strikes that are political are still nevertheless tied to the capitalist mode of production, and the strongest weapon working people have against that is still stopping work. The power of the strike is in the age-old demand. Which side are you on? Now, one of the many ways that President Trump has tried to ingratiate himself with the working class, the so-called white working class, and the labor movement in general is by advocating for the revival of blue-collar jobs, supposedly by handing more federal contracts to corporate contractors for huge infrastructure projects, uh, ones that happen to be extremely harmful to the environment, like the Keystone XL pipeline, and also undermining government regulations to make it easier for those corporations to fleece workers. Oh, did I say fleece workers? I really meant, uh, you know, liberating them from regulatory burden. Trump, as a hotshot developer in New York's real estate industry, knows this process well. He has subsequently championed free enterprise at the expense of virtually everything else, including the environment and, of course, workers' communities. So the fight now goes to local-level initiatives that see sound policies that can protect workers and provide jobs as integral to real development. Garrett Brown, former Cal OSHA safety expert and now an advocate for workplace justice issues around the world, wrote recently about a campaign against refinery pollution in Richmond, California, um, a progressive city in the heart of California's refinery wasteland. And Brown talks about how communities came together with labor to protect both the environment and jobs. He writes, this successful blue-green coalition held off industry pressure and reversed earlier backdoor revisions to the proposal to benefit the oil corporations, which are major campaign contributors to Governor Jerry Brown. The winning strategy of uniting workers, environmentalists, and community members is a powerful example of how health and safety regulations can be improved despite an industry's wealth, power, and political influence. Richmond, which journalist Steve Early recently wrote about in his new book, um, about the city as a case study and how urban and community labor coalitions can work together for cross-cutting social justice movements. Richmond has long been tethered to big oil and gas. Things came to a head when a fire broke out at a big Chevron refinery and released vast amounts of toxic pollution into the air in 2012. This left residents with major respiratory issues. Overall, about 15,000 people were affected. Many were hospitalized. There are about 125 such plant safety violations across the U.S. annually recently, and there's been a long legacy of environmental injustice in refinery communities disproportionately harming and killing black and brown people. The community sprang into action by launching a concerted effort to oversee the reissuing of a refinery pollution regulatory standard. This is usually done through a pretty opaque process, a lot of insider wheeling and dealing going on, but... The community kept their eyes on the prize, were vigilant about overseeing the process with regulators, and made sure that they got their word in before the industry got the better of those government actors. The collaborative overseeing the process was a blue-green alliance constituted of unions, environmental groups, community organizations, uh, and the Labor Occupational Health Program at UC Berkeley. The organization was renamed the Collaborative on Refinery Safety and Community Health in 2013, and it brought on board the United Steelworkers, Blue Green Alliance, 
um, and communities for a better environment. The industry lobby, meanwhile, was pushing for a new regulatory standard that could be done on the cheap, provided only very weak protections for air quality. That process went on for months, and there was major pushback from the community to impose stronger regulations. Governor Jerry Brown, who has presented himself as a green, policy-friendly governor, but has simultaneously taken in huge donations from the oil industry, was under increasing pressure to put the community interest over the industries. The collaborative presented a new environmental assessment of compliance costs as well as the problems with Big Oil's preferred proposal. In the end, the choice is clear. The most protective public health standard would cost the industry more, but it was needed to prevent the tragedies of the past. And moreover, they got both the building trade union and developers to sign on to the plan, in addition to environmental and community organizations representing a wide array of diverse interests. The new regulation ultimately allowed for workers to have more leverage to advocate for safe working conditions, and that was good for the community downwind because it protected them against fire hazards too. The proposal provides workers with stop work authority, which means that they can refuse to do unsafe work if the management pressures them to. It also requires the proposal their proposal also requires the use of safer technology to protect both workers and the community outside. In other words, what's good for the workers inside is also good for the environment and the people living downwind. Brown concludes that this example stands out as a success against a very powerful industry with sympathetic politicians and their appointed agency heads ever eager to please. It is an example that could be followed to protect against health and safety hazards elsewhere in the United States. And the cool thing is there's nothing inherently unique about Richmond. It's a working class town. It's got a lot of people of color. And while it does have a tradition of progressive politics, these aren't tree huggers from Berkeley. They're working people. They understand the meaning of safety, why it's vital for their kids, and how they need to marshal experts and beef up their scientific assessments that they can take on the big players in the industry when push comes to shove and they can understand whether regulations are really working for them. Since the Trump administration is hell-bent on undermining federal regulations, this is exactly the kind of localism without nimbyism that communities need in order to advance environmental and labor justice simultaneously. Because frankly, you can't have one with the other if you want to build sustainable communities. And everyone needs to live together as neighbors. That's something, of course, that Washington has long forgotten but we can no longer afford to. That's all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, you can tweet us at hashtag belabored or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Please also remember to go to our magazine page and become a sustaining member if you can. You get a free tote bag and of course, you get to take part in helping to advance labor justice issues on independent media. Thank you. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>